0: Join me once again in Romans chapter 14, this time. Romans chapter 14. I will admit I am glad to finally be to this chapter. You know, all of the Word of God is important. I wouldn't say that any of it can be discarded. It's all useful, it's all inspired, but I would say the passage before us that we're going to begin considering this morning is utterly vital to understand when it comes to the areas of interrelationships between Christian people, Uh, listen, particularly those in what would be called conservative or fundamental churches. There are things here that are absolutely critical for us to understand and provide a good counterbalance uh, to a lot of other passages uh, that we also are familiar with. So I do hope you are praying, even as this message is preached, for the Lord to give us understanding. We would know the mind of the Lord on these vital topics. There are some delicate things we're going to discuss, uh, but they need to be discussed. So join me if you would, Romans 14. Let's stand if you're able. We're just going to read... The first four verses, Romans 14. Him that is weak in the faith receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. For one believeth that he may eat all things, another who is weak eateth herbs. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not. Let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth for God hath received him. Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for these words. We ask You once again to give us illumination. Help us to understand, to get into the meat of of this passage as we go through it. I pray, Lord, You would transform our hearts and minds, and especially that You would mold us into the image of Christ. Lord, You know what areas in each life here need to be trimmed and pruned. And Father, where necessary, I pray You'd break out Your pruning shears this morning. I ask that for my own life also. Help us, Lord, to please You our stances, our direction, and our demeanor. In Jesus' name, amen. Really, this section it goes from Romans 14.1 up through chapter 15, verse 7. So it is a little bit longer than this one chapter this morning. We're basically just introducing... Uh, the broader topic of what is discussed here. There's a lot of things that are discussed, so we're going to talk about a lot of practical things in preparation of walking through this important section of Scripture. I think that all of us would agree, in fact, I'd be surprised if we did not, that there are many areas in the Christian life that are absolutely not up for debate. If we stand up and we say, Jesus is Lord, and you actually mean that, that statement, Uh, One of the things you're saying is that He is a fearful, sovereign, majestic presence in the heavens who has all authority to tell you what to do and that your job is to obey. That much, I would say, is a given, I hope, among the Lord's people. And we believe uh, the Bible is able to do exactly what it says. That this book is profitable, useful for doctrine, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, for reproof that the man or the woman of God may be brought to completion, furnished unto every good work. We believe that this book is the written and inspired and preserved Word of God, and all of those are important. And it's our lamp that shines in a dark place, and so of necessity we would say uh, the Word of God speaks clearly by direct statement or principle about every vital area of human existence. So we do as a church reject the growing trend to act as though the Bible really only talks about a slender portion of human existence. If you're paying attention to what's going on, you know what I'm talking about. As time progresses and the apostasy grows, you find more and more areas of the Christian life that supposedly the Bible really doesn't talk about. Now as a whole, I reject that lock, stock, and barrel. The Lord has not given us just a fraction of things to chew on, while it's up to us to fill in the gaps of what we think God should have said. Chapters 12 and 13 presented many of these non-negotiable principles, and hopefully you remember some of them. Uh, One of them is abhor that which is evil, cling to that which is good. The constant posture of people who claim to belong to Jesus Christ should be one of hating evil, and while at the same time tenaciously clinging, grabbing hold of that which is good in God's sight. That ought to be our attitude. That should be our outlook. Don't take vengeance. Remember that one? The Lord says, that's my department. Get off the freight train tracks and let me deal with it. It's not for you to deal with. Christians are to be subject to government. Our duty is clear. Uh, And other authority figures, for the Lord's sake, with rare exception, of course, when we're told to do something directly opposed to Uh, To what God has revealed in His Word. Christians are to pay their taxes, to honor those who should be honored, to fear those who should be served. Yes, even lost government leaders. Uh, Christians are not to be those who commit adultery, lie, kill, steal, covet, to work ill towards their neighbors. They're not to be party animals, drunkards, contentious people, green with envy. They're not to be people who lay up provision for the fallen flesh to be satisfied. And once again, there's a lot of ways that can happen. That was the end of uh, chapter 13. Remember, make not provision for the flesh. Listen, there's areas where you and I can have blind spots and you can be actively leaving room for yourself to fall. And another brother or sister will come up and say, hey, why are you leaving the door of temptation open? If you see a brother or sister doing that, you ought to say something. But on the other side, if we're honest with ourselves, we know these deceitful hearts of ours have ways of making provision to walk into temptation that nobody else knows about. We have ways to appear noble to where nobody else sees it but us. And this is where we have to develop the honesty to be brutally transparent before God about the reality of our own walk. Most of you know exactly what I'm talking about with that. Oh, we have fickle hearts. But every once in a while, we have this sort of experience, and I think a lot of you know what I'm talking about on this one too. You know you want to live as a stranger and pilgrim on the earth? I hope you do. In this spiritually barren wasteland? You're looking for a city that has foundations? uh, Whose builder and maker is God? And uh, all of a sudden, you meet somebody and you think, Hey... Uh, this is a basis for real fellowship. I mean, everything you discuss, it seems like you agree. Hey, I finally found a kindred spirit. Here's somebody I can really get along with. The flame's just burning. Oh, you have that standard too. Well, that's terrific. Hey, I've always thought this. And and then it happens. Maybe it's uh, something they say, or uh, maybe it's something they possess. Maybe it's uh, somewhere you see them all of a sudden your spirit just shrinks back. And you become a little icy in your countenance. You become suspicious. and Maybe I really shouldn't trust that person at all. Now, I'm going to say this. It's not always wrong to have that reaction. There are times you should. I mean, they tell you they believe there's four members of the Trinity, that Jesus is an alien, I'm not being funny, about it. I mean, there's people that think these kind of things. But a lot of times, what's happening is a wrongful overreaction on our part. You see, there's, there are these things that are non-negotiable things in the Christian life. They are very, very clear-cut, but here in Romans 14, we're entering into areas of a different sort. Things that are not so clearly defined. Things in which Christians may disagree even passionately at times. And it's not immediately settled, or it's not ever settled. You know, I'll admit, my tendency since I first became a Christian was to gravitate towards the strictest position on most areas. I mean, my tendency has been to say, you know what? Why straddle the fence? If something's a gray area, somebody says, gray's a mixture of black and white, why hang out in the gray? When you're admitting there's some black mixed in. Now, that's not always a bad thing, but I will say this. If I'm honest, there's times my reactions to a brother's differing viewpoint has driven a wedge that did not need to be there. I've done that many times as I look past. And I'm telling you, as I go through passages like this, I'm asking God, show me my own faults. Because they're there. There's been platforms of influence that I've lost because of the wrong spirits, misplaced arguments I've uh, gone into, either at the wrong time or in the wrong spirit. I remember I didn't learn the principle. I think a lot of ministers go through this early on in their days as they're preparing. They begin to collect books, and uh, they haven't yet learned that. Uh, you're, you're going to disagree with something in about every book you have. And so I begin to collect books, and I'd hear something about a particular author. I'd find an area of disagreement, and I thought, oh, anathema! Throw that book away! And so uh, you begin to build your library, and then you, you empty it, and then you begin to build your library, and then you empty it again. I hadn't learned that theology sometimes is like eating fish. you got to spit out some bones. And you know what? Sometimes years down the road, Guess who was wrong? Me. I've gone through a lot of my books early in my college days I wrote comments. Wrong. False. And I go back and read it later and go, Woo boy, I should have been teachable. I'll tell you a story. I'm rather ashamed of this, but I still feel bad to this day. My mother, you know, prayed for me for years to come to Christ. And eventually I did and I was going to go to the ministry and she was excited about it and she didn't have a lot of money. She thought, I'm going I'm to get my son some books. You know? So she buys books by this particular author that, that both of us enjoyed. And I had them on my shelf for a few months until I found one of those bones. And I thought, oh, I better better throw these away. Well, I was living at my grandparents' house, and so I discreetly went and threw them in the garbage. Well, my grandmother likes to go through the trash sometimes. And she dug them out, and she thought, hey, religious books, I bet Debbie would want them. So she calls my mom and says, I found these books in the garbage. So mom calls me. Do you mind if I keep those books if you don't want them? I still, I kid you not, feel bad about that. Uh, Would I have those books on my shelf today? Probably. I would know the area of disagreement, but I could grow. So my point is, I've come down on the wrong side of this numerous times. Now I think it's necessary to point out Romans 14 has fallen into malicious hands in recent days, and it is a favorite hiding place of those pushing a liberal agenda. You've heard me say it multiple times since I've been here, the doctrine of Christian liberty has been butchered and redefined and turned around backwards and served up as the faith of the apostles in alarming fashion, particularly in the last 50 years. If you divorce this chapter uh, from the actual context, If you divorce this chapter from the rest of the New Testament, you literally can justify almost anything. You really can. I'm going to illustrate that in a minute. One of the axioms of Bible interpretation we have got to have drummed in our heads is context, context, context. What is this saying? Who is it speaking to? What's the background information? That allows us to make proper interpretation, and out of that comes a rightful application. Uh, This week we've been having issues with our water heater. We have one of those tankless ones. And, uh, well, it has one function to produce hot water, and it hasn't been doing that, but it sure makes a lot of noise. It sounds like it's going to blow up. You can just about hear it from across the street. It's very noisy. So you know you have a water heater, but it's not doing anything profitable. And uh, the repair guy comes, he takes it apart, and he said, you know, I found about five pounds worth of dead insects in there. And those cake onto the fan. And they clog the air intake so there's no combustion air. And then that fan spins out of balance. And that noise you hear is an out of balance fan. you got to clean all that out. You know, if we don't learn to put things in their context or to balance scriptural passages with other ones, basically you develop an imbalanced view of the mind of God. And you might make a lot of noise... But your interpretation of Scripture and vast tracts of your Christian life are going to be horribly out of balance and unprofitable in heaven's viewpoint. So it's necessary to say Romans 14 has got to be understood in context of what it is actually talking about. Now, let me illustrate. Uh, pay careful attention to the examples Paul uses in here. If you don't do that, if you don't take it in context, look at verse 2, Romans 14, verse 2. Let's say you cut Romans 14 out, you divorce it from the New Testament, and you just start to make application. Verse 2, One believeth, he may eat all things. Another who is weak, eateth herbs. So the person that thinks he can do whatever he wants is the spiritual one, and the brother that sees the problem with things is the weak one. Is that always true? No? In fact, I was just talking to a pastor recently. And he was pleading with a guy to dump his liquor down the drain. This guy was claiming his Christian liberty. And he said, let me ask you a question. If I was over at your house, would you drink that? The guy said, oh, no. He said, because I know you're the weaker brother, and I wouldn't want to offend your sensitive conscience. And he said, oh, so now you're justifying your sin by taking the spiritual high road. Isn't that amazing? Verse 3, look at verse 3. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not, and let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth, for God hath received him. So you take that by itself. Don't judge anybody because God receives everyone equally. How about verse 5? Let every man be persuaded in his own mind. In other words, the acid test is whether you think it's right. Listen, I'm not kidding. These are, the, these are the exact explanations that are being churned out of the megachurches in mass. I'm not going to do it, but I could spend the next hour giving you quotations to back up what I'm saying. I'm just recently in one of these LGBT indoctrination classes. He a Baptist chaplain. He's teaching these other professing Christians in the military how to accept this new lifestyle, and here's what he said. Face it, folks. We live in an age where the individual defines what is true. You have to accept that. What well, we do. Well, let every man be persuaded in his own mind, says the twister of Scripture. Look at verse 4, 10, and 13, just quickly. Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? Verse 10, why dost thou judge thy brother? Verse 13, let us not therefore judge anymore. So take that by itself. Never judge your brother. Never tell him he's wrong. Is that what Paul believed? Let I me mean, go to Galatians 2 and ask Peter how that went. See, context, context, context. We have to take it what he's actually saying. Look at verse 14. I know and I'm persuaded by the Lord Jesus Christ there's nothing unclean of itself, but to Him that esteemeth it unclean. It's unclean and the other way around. So in other words, nothing sinful. It's all a matter of how you see it. You see, if you don't understand what he's saying, that's what you come up with. So, uh, crack cocaine is all right. Acid rock music, just fine. In fact, one of these apostate, liberal, Anglican bishops made the statement not long ago. He said, fornication may be wrong 99 out of 100 times or 100 out of 100 times, but not intrinsically so. That's what he was saying. If I esteem it to be clean, it must be clean. Uh, Verse 22. Hast thou faith? Have it to thyself before God. Happy is he that condemneth not himself in that thing which he alloweth. Again, taken out of context, don't condemn yourself in your actions. I mean, don't put any surface scratches in your precious hot rod of self-esteem. Whatever makes you happy, just, just do it. And again, these are the very explanations that people come up with when they don't balance this with the rest of the New Testament. So Romans 14, for starters, is not talking about areas that the Word of God plainly addresses elsewhere. That is very critical to understanding this. I mean, do you understand? The character of God will not allow Him to forbid certain associations and activities and then turn around in another passage and tell you everything's fine as long as your conscience and feelings say it's okay. God can't contradict Himself. If that were the case, all you'd need is Romans 14, not the rest of the New Testament. The rest of the New Testament is most assuredly there. Romans 14, this is huge, is speaking about areas which the Word of God is silent. Now, let me explain what I mean by silent. It doesn't mean there's no principles to apply. There's always some principles to apply to situations. But what it means is dealing with areas... Of broadly different interpretation, where the application of these principles leads to honest and God honoring differences of opinion. I mean, on one side, we have to be very careful here. I mean, our deceitful heart's going to do its utmost to convince us that Bible principles don't apply to almost anything. Just as a side note, I mentioned alcohol already. Many, many, many people want to shove the alcohol debate into Romans 14, it doesn't fit there. There's too many other passages that discuss it. It would make the Bible contradict itself. The discussion on music. Listen, music can be preferential to an extent. There is room for that. But there's a lot of doctrinal areas tied in with musical direction. And to that degree where that's an issue, that doesn't fit into Romans 14. That's a growing trend to everything's preference. I prefer that, so it must be okay. You have to be careful... What you put in the category of rightful preference versus ignoring Bible doctrine. But nevertheless, I mean, do you realize God designed on purpose areas in which we can lawfully disagree? And He did that intentionally. And do you realize that a particular activity or possession might be sinful for you? but not for somebody else. That is the case at least some of the time. Do you honestly recognize God does use flawed people, even people in which you see major blemishes? And guess what? He doesn't need your permission or mine. That's one of the great things biographies remind us of. You know, early in my Christian life, Uh, A.W. Tozer made a huge impact, and I still recommend Tozer, although there's areas I disagree with, quoting the Catholic mystics would be one of those. I don't understand why he does that. But I remember early on learning about the tragedy in this man's life. The way all seven of his children walked away from God. The way when his wife was remarried after his death... She said, A.W. Tozer was God's man, but my new husband is my man. Those should never contradict, by the way. And because of Tozer's deep flaws, there was a time I couldn't read his writings. It bothered me too bad. But I've since learned to say, hey, he was wrong there. Thank God he still uses it. You know, D.L. Moody, the big-hearted evangelist, had had a violent temper. He wanted to have a lawn like people had in England, and so he worked on this precious lawn of his, and one time his boys damaged it, and he, in great anger, gave them a serious thrashing because they dinged up his precious lawn. Now, he went back and dealt with it. But he had a temper. You know, George Whitfield, the great evangelist, believed that on the heels of his revivals, the Millennial Kingdom was going to come and Christ was going to descend. Well, he was wrong on that. But did God use him? Uh, he sure did use him. And many other examples could be given. I mean, how about this? Do you realize there's probably nobody on this earth that you're going to agree with to the jot and tittle? And it will always be that way until glory. If you're on a search for finding the person that you can have fellowship with that thinks exactly like you on everything, you're in for serious heartache. And you're missing what this passage is teaching. Part of the reason the Lord does that, I think, is to give us room to bear with one another, to grow in charity, uh, to see the complete picture regarding others. And to understand each of us are a unique creation and no two pathways are exactly like. I mean, are you able to recognize that somebody can be wrong in an obvious area and be right in a whole lot of others? And by the way, that's the same with you. Every one of you. Are you willing to allow people the time and space to grow in Christ or do you feel you need to fix everything right now? My friends, listen, in the whole Christian liberty discussion, there's there's ditches on both sides. I mean, on one hand, it's throw all restraints out the window. Put everything in the category of preference. As long as I do it for the Lord, as long as I feel happy about it, don't judge me, you dirty legalist. Nothing's evil in and of itself. That's one ditch. And it's a deep one. Here's the other one. The other ditch... Is making dogmatic laws out of the Bible silence. It's taking the unique leading God has given you and making that the rule for everyone around you to walk. It's the tendency to take our own list of scruples and evaluate everyone I meet by some checklist in our own proud fallen head. I'm not trying to be unkind. I thank God for the homeschool movement. You know that. But that's one atmosphere where this type of mentality, there's very fertile soil for this to grow. I've had some interesting discussions over the years. You see people looking down their long, hairy nostrils at other people over things like uh, whether or not they grow their own organic produce, how much of their own cattle they raise. Whether they use cloth diapers, which curriculum they use out of the 50,000 that are out there now, which guru they follow. Are you a Doug Phillipite? I hope not. Are you a Gothardite? Come on, what are you? Which mold do you fit in? Whether their children use a desk or a table or sit on a couch or take video classes, which conferences? They attend or don't. My friends, by the way, the family integrated church movement, there's a lot of good things, but one of their serious errors is forcing dogmatic laws in areas where the Bible's silent. It's elevating preference to the area of doctrine. That's a serious mistake. Whether they use the word church, whether they, uh, their children attend college or why. And what you'll find sadly, and again, I say this with a broken heart, These type of people generally have a history of constant divisions. They've attended 24 churches. They've been part of nine home fellowships that have all imploded. They've joined and been the spokesperson for and then repudiated six different homeschool support groups. And now they walk around with a little holy pout and they can tell you everybody else's problem, but they never get that they are a large part of the problem because they haven't learned the difference between doctrine and preference. And major issues and minor issues and straining at gnats and swallowing camels. And listen, that mentality can be just as damaging to Christian fellowship as outright liberalism. I'm not saying standards are not important. They are important. But do you understand? You can have very high standards and be far more carnal than a person without them. And listen, I dare say this is a huge danger in fundamentalism of this mentality. I think this is more of a temptation of churches that want to maintain a high standard and want to stand for truth. I read a magazine recently written by some that would fit into the neo-fundamental uh, movement if you're familiar with that. It's those that have taken some of fundamentalism. They've got their, their staunch on King James Bibles and... And many things, but it's kind of blending with the emerging church elements and laser lights and all of that. And uh, reading through this magazine, it became very important, uh, very apparent to me. A lot of what made them leave this movement was the type of attitude I just mentioned. It was rules without reason, it was law without love, and it was standards without charity. And sadly, many of them have overreacted by running into the other ditch and throwing everything out. And really, neither one of those is correct. I mean, it's good to take a standing against evil. It's good to honor the Lord in every way we can. But shame on us if we push people away because of a wicked attitude of superiority. I mean, do you understand? No difference of opinion ever takes away the law of kindness. No difference of opinion ever takes away the necessity of remembering our own pathetic weakness. I think it's good to ask ourselves the question, how do you view the Christian life? Is it doing or is it not doing? Do you view Christianity as a list of things you don't do? Many people unwittingly do that very thing. Do you believe you're spiritually mature and full of faith because of all the things you don't do? Do you evaluate other people by all the things you think they shouldn't do? Now don't misunderstand me. There's plenty of things a Christian shouldn't do. There's a place for that. But separation doesn't in and of itself make you spiritual. Those of you that are involved in the building trades, I might get myself in hot water here, but uh, you know what type of uh, uh, opinion people have generally of building inspectors. I don't complain about them, but I've heard plenty of people do so. What's the worst kind of building inspector? It's the guy who's never built anything in his life. Right? Why? Why? because all he knows is how to walk through and point out the flaws. And because he's good at pointing out out all the flaws, he thinks he's good at building even though he's never done it. I think sometimes we can get the idea that we're the building inspectors in the Lord's temple. And it's our commission to point out all the problems and never actually pick up the trial and build anything. I mean, look at the fruit of the Spirit. What's the fruit of the Spirit? Is it not doing or doing? Does it say the fruit of the Spirit is separation, division, anxiety, suspicion, and pointing out problems? The fruit of the Spirit is all positive doing, living out Christ. Yes, there's things we shouldn't do, but. Let's look at the other side of that. Real spirituality is not equal to what you don't do. Real spirituality is the degree to which you manifest the positive attributes of the Spirit of God in you. How well do you show charity? Do you manifest joy this morning? Are you at real inner peace? Are you characterized by meekness? approachability? Are you long-suffering? Willing to put up with things around you for a long while? Are you gentle? Those are the things that mark real spiritual maturity. Now let's just consider the background here for a minute. You'll notice in verses 2 and 5, the specific examples given are had to do with diet, what was eaten, and uh, certain days. In other words, there were uh, certain things under discussion that could or could not be eaten, and certain days that either should or should not be treated differently than any other days. Now, why those examples? Well, you can imagine uh, what took place in the early church. You had this mixture of Jews and Gentiles. The Jews, having just come out of centuries of life under the Mosaic law, all they'd ever known is this rigid system of certain foods they were forbidden to eat, and and one day every week, as well as several times during the year, where they were required to do or not do certain things. So to the Jew, his mentality very much consisted of approaching God through diet and days. That was how the Jewish mind thought. And all of this, of course, was intended by God to be a schoolmaster, to be preparation for the coming of the Messiah. When the training wheels were taken off, the age of grace was commenced, the full blazing light of the New Testament was revealed. And this mystery called the church, the body and bride of Christ, the Gentiles are now fellow heirs on equal footing. The dietary laws are done away. Remember Peter in Acts 10? I mean, why do you think the Lord needed to give him this vision of all the animals coming down, telling him, kill and eat? Three times! It was a big adjustment in thought. And the New Testament church was given no day in which to observe as a rigid law under penalty of punishment. The Sabbath is never presented as binding in the New Testament, not once. And by the way, the Lord's Day is not the new Sabbath. Totally different emphasis. Sunday, you'll find in Scripture, is a day of privilege, not obligation. Sunday is never presented as a new Sabbath where God's going to curse you if you do or don't do certain things. You know, it's not hard to imagine the passionate disagreements that ensued. You know, the Jews had this ingrained sense of spiritual superiority. The Gentiles were the new kids on the block. They were the ones with all the ignorant questions. I mean, what do you mean you don't have all 613 commands memorized? I thought you feared God. Where have you been? And by the way, that's not unlike what a second or third generation generation Christian may struggle with in their own mind. It's a precious thing to be second, third, fourth generation Christian. That is a wonderful thing. Don't despise that. But if that's you, realize you have a tendency to approach people like the Jews did in the early church because you've never been in the same depths of idolatry. You've never been in the same black background. You don't know what it's like by experience, and I'm glad you don't. Okay, then you have the Gentiles. They were, they were much faster, on the other hand, to grasp the fact the New Testament gave no regulation regarding, regarding diet and days. That fit right into their understanding. So the Gentiles considered themselves superior for not being so base and legalistic as to worry about such trifles. So here you've got uh, Mr. Linguini, the Roman Gentile. And then you've got Mr. Rabinowitz, the dyed in the wool, purebred Jew. And uh, both of them newly come to Christ and they're at each other's throats. And uh, Mr. Rabinowitz, he's saying, You, you were out in your backyard yesterday, sweating, defiling the Sabbath. I haven't broken the Sabbath since the day I was born. And then you brought this flesh of swine to the fellowship meal. Defiled meat. Where is your conscience, my brother? Mr. Linguini says, well, uh, if you were more mature, you could handle some bacon. And your yard, by the way, could use some attention, Sabbath or not. You think God's honored by you sitting there drinking lemonade like a lazy bum while the thorns take over your property? You should hear what the neighbors are saying about your so-called religion. Looks to me like your Sabbath scruples are getting in the way of your Christian testimony, Mr. Jew. What a fine excuse to be lazy. And so back and forth it goes, each claiming to be more mature and spiritual. And look, broader applications are not hard to make. Think of the differences that, or, or the or the background issues that lead to some of these differences of opinion. I mean, what kind of factors influence this? How about national identity? You think your people group historically has something to do with how you view the world and even religion? Uh, how about various religious experiences? If you come out of a background of being in some man centered cult, your tendencies are going to be more resistant to any sort of authority figures, particularly in the church. If you come from a legalistic, cultic type branch of fundamentalism, your tendencies are going to be run away from standards. If you come from a Catholicism, you're going to have a hypersensitivity to relics and icons. That's not a bad thing. But our religious background, where we came from, which is different in a lot of cases, that has to do with it. a family upbringing. How rules were enforced. Was it kindly? Was it brutally? Dinner time discussions. How they, whoever they are, was perceived and discussed and how they were talked about and uh, how your parents spoke about others. Local culture, and that goes with you to some degree, take someone from Montana and stick them in Seattle, and tell me local culture doesn't go with them. It does. Individual personality, which is all unique. The particular depths of wickedness in which you used to dwell. Your old life, the depths of sin you went to, the particular veins down in the mind of iniquity that you descended to, is not exactly the same as anybody else. And some of those are going to make you sensitive to things that another brother is not sensitive to because of a different experience in your background. Now friends, all of that's in addition to a person's actual level of spiritual maturity. So disagreements on matters of everyday Christian conduct to a point are bound to happen. And a lot of them are not easily solved. And many of them will never be solved this side of heaven. And listen, a lot of times there seems to be scriptural justification on both sides. I personally think that is one of the main reasons why the account in Acts 15 of the split of Paul and Barnabas is there, is that very reason. In fact, it talks about the sharp contention. Listen, this wasn't my brother, let's sit down for tea and leisurely discuss our differences. Uh, The Greek terminology, that sharp contention, this was explosive. This was red-faced, nose to nose, what in the world's wrong with your brain? And listen, I would say both of them were wrong in their attitude. But both of them could be seen as right in their application of scripture. Can you imagine? I mean, here's Barnabas. He says, "Paul, how can we cut off John Mark after one mistake?" Have you no grace? Have you forgotten the Lord's mercy to you? Do you not remember standing there directing the crowd that put Stephen to death? Did you not call yourself the chief of sinners? How can you not be more forgiving than that? Paul says, Barnabas, I'm not denying I'm a sinner. But the mission we're called to is serious. It's life and death. There's going to be more persecution. There's going to be more struggle. There's going to be more deprivation. We're going to be imprisoned. We don't have time for turncoats. Look, he failed. He needs to take time to build back up. Let him minister at home, but he can't come. Who was right? I would say they both had right arguments. And the beautiful thing is there, the Lord never declares the winner. He just leaves it. Let me just give some practical examples, and there's a lot that could be given. In the past 19 years, things I've personally witnessed, lived in a lot of states, I've been to a lot of churches, and these are discussions I've run across, either watching or sadly sometimes been involved in sharp contentions over that I would say fit into Romans 14. How about the celebration of Christmas? Uh, I don't know if I'm going to for sure, but I might talk about that in depth because it really is a tremendous illustration of verse 5. And by the way, July is a really good time to talk about it. It's a long time before the passions start rising. I know of brethren who split a church over that. This was a cloistered group. Some of them wanted to go reach the community for Christ. They went out Christmas caroling one night. The rest of them dug in their heels, packed up their bags, and left. I don't think that's that big of an issue. I'm sorry. The wearing of wedding rings. I've seen huge contention over that. Someone says, oh, it's it's vain. I, I mean, how can you spend that much money on a useless thing you're going to put on your finger? You no. Know, someone else says, Hey. It's our cultural symbol of marriage. It's a layer of safety. I want it. I want people to know I'm married. And by the way, I want people to know I belong to her. I've been on the other side of the tracks. I've been the one who wanted the looks from the wicked women. And you know what? This helps me not make provision for the flesh. That's my position. You disagree? Go ahead. I'm not going to try to talk you out of it. That's fine. But I've seen people get real worked up about cosmetics, should ladies wear makeup? I know that's been discussed in the ladies' Bible study here, but believe me, this I've heard this for the last 19 years, because I've been saved. I hear one says, you know, I just don't feel comfortable spending money on that. I don't feel like I'm putting on a false front. I'm not going to talk you out of that. Someone else says, when I get up in the morning, I look like I got hit by Mike Tyson. I want to look nice for my husband. I think it's a practical safeguard. Romans 14. Dress standards. Now, don't get me wrong. Christian modesty is important. The Bible says a lot about the way a Christian dresses. I'm not going to talk about that right now, but it has a lot to do with it. Okay? Uh, We do have written standards for those uh, helping on the ministry here that we're going to upheld. We've got to draw a line somewhere. But at the same time, here's what I do recognize. There's not this perfectly crisp line that draws the difference between good and bad here. Are we all going to agree to the half-inch? No, we're not. Can we accept that? I hope so. How about church liturgy? The order of service. Maybe you've noticed the Bible doesn't give an order of service for the New Testament church. Someone gets mad and says, well, you know, back in Russia, uh, we have three sermons every Sunday. You guys are pathetically weak around here. You only have one, and it wasn't that good anyways. Does the Bible specify that? No. By the way, try to find hymn singing in the New Testament church. You can't find that either. Does it mean it's wrong? No. That just didn't develop until later on as part of the service. So the Bible doesn't give a specific order of service. I mean, should we sing all the verses of a hymn, or should we sing half of the verses so we can sing more hymns? Is it something to fight over? Not hardly. Not hardly. How about this one? You ready for this? You guys know my thoughts on the contemporary church direction. Let's say a church gets rid of the hymnals and they put a screen up here and put all the words up there. Some of you are already thinking, hmm. Let me point something out though. By the way, I, I don't like, that's not my favorite, you know that. But let me say this. I'm not talking about a philosophical shift in music. That's a different issue. But let's say a brother says, you know what? We keep replacing hymnals Because children throw up on them and tear them. They get lost. And uh, they get misplaced. And we're spending a lot of extra money trying to make up for that. Uh, We want to add more sacred music to our hymnal, and we don't really like gluing pages in. And we frankly like people looking up instead of staring down at the ground like this. You may not like it, but you have no scriptural grounds to say that's wrong in that instance. Now, I'll be honest, I don't look forward to the day when everybody shows up to church with their electronic Bible. I don't. I would warn against that on the grounds of the distraction factor. You're sitting there with an email icon, and, and you got text messages, and maybe I'll, maybe I'll send a little tweet. Wasn't that a nice part of the sermon? I think I'll tweet it. And I would say, don't have the distractions, but... Is there anything intrinsically evil about the Bible in electronic format? It would be like somebody telling you your Bible's unspiritual because it was made on a printing press and it's not handwritten. See? So, even in the contemporary direction, which I have to warn against as a pastor, we've got to draw the difference between the philosophical doctrinal errors and the things that, in and of themselves, aren't necessarily bad. Should a church go into debt for a building? That'll start a discussion. By the way, when our church in Alaska, we were going through a building project because they ripped our other one down because they were widening the highway, so we had to deal with it. I was the lone voice in that committee who was an annoying thorn in everyone's side saying we absolutely should never, ever, ever go into debt. I was. The pastor was very nice about it. He didn't agree. Church went forward, and uh, by the way, they were able to build it debt-free, but if they'd listened to me at the time, they wouldn't have gone forward. There's a lot of other factors involved, but can you say either one's intrinsically right or wrong? I don't think so. It depends on a lot of other things. How much humor is acceptable? You've probably noticed when I'm preaching, I don't try to be a comedian. It's a life and death thing. I don't think the Word of God is written as a comedy book. You ever listen to a sermon that you thought the guy cracked three times as many jokes as he should have? Where should that line be drawn? Someone says, well, Jesus never smiled in the New Testament. It's never recorded. No, it's not. But you think that means don't ever smile? No. Look, I know brethren that are very effective teachers that crack jokes a lot more than I would recommend. But I can't say they're wrong. I just may not prefer that. What kind of amusement should a Christian be involved in? Here's one family, they have no problem putting out five bucks to ride on a Ferris wheel. Another family does. There's a lot of discussion about betrothal and courtship. You know, again, if you've been around Christian circles for years, you know what I'm talking about. And, and, and how long this should last and that should last and how everything should be done. There's some great principles, there's some great ideas people have, but we have to be careful saying this is exactly how you should do it. I mean, I don't share this often. My wife and I, our first kiss was our wedding day. I would recommend that. But would I say dogmatically, I have to make that a rule for everybody. I'd have a hard time doing that. I will tell you this, I knew from where I came from, that was a stance I had I, I better make. But even that is a flat-out binding principle. Like I said, I'd highly recommend it. And I'd offer a lot of caution in that discussion, but to say that is the law, period, I'd have a hard time doing Now look, there's hundreds of similar issues that could be raised if we took the time. Now, I just want to look at a few verses, and next time we're going to go into this more more deeply. But the discussion begins here in chapter 14 uh, with to these hypothetical brethren, one of them is called weak, and the other one obviously considered strong. And by the way, in this context, the weak brother is actually the one that's not doing the questionable practice. Now, that doesn't mean that if you have a problem with something, you're always the weak brother. That's not the case. That's a butchering. But what it does mean is sometimes that is the case. Just because I don't do something somebody else does, does not automatically mean I'm the stronger brother. Not necessarily. So this particular brother has a scrupulousness that goes far above what the Word of God actually declares. I mean, even that would be fine. But he's apparently trying to force this into everybody else's life. Now, principle number one, what do you do with this kind of brother? Him that's weak in the faith, receive ye. Uh, Weak in the faith doesn't mean he doesn't understand the doctrines of the gospel. It means he's weak in understanding parts of the New Testament faith. He's weak in understanding the real liberty he does have in Christ. He's weak in understanding the difference between doctrine and preference. Him that's weak in the faith, uh, he's to be received. Don't run him out the door. And it says to receive him not to doubtful disputations. There's a lot of discussion on those two words. Basically, here's what it's saying. Don't receive him in with the purpose of engaging him in debates and burying him in verbal assaults aimed at fixing all of his problems overnight. In other words, you see these struggles he's having. Don't receive him into the fellowship with the goal of surrounding him like spiritual buzzards and tearing him limb from limb and all of his problems. Now, does that mean we don't deal with error? No, it does not. But it means we understand the difference between problems that need to be addressed now and problems that need to be addressed over time and Christian growth through discipleship. There is a difference. Just because you see a need or a struggle in your brother's life does not necessarily mean you need to deal with it right this second. Sometimes it's just a call to prayer. Leave it. Let God deal with it over time. The Principle number two is mutual forbearance. Look at verses 2 and 3. You know, you got the one who believes he can eat, the other one who doesn't. Look at verse 3. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not. So he says... Uh, The one one who's doing the eating, he's saying don't despise. In other words, don't look at the person with a higher standard and treat him with contempt. Oh, you goody-goody, holier-than-thou. I always did think you were a little snobbish. Are you judging me, you legalist? So he's saying, don't look at the brother with a higher standard and and with contempt, with despising like that. But, turn that around. Him that does not eat. The person that does refrain, that doesn't have the problem with whatever's in question. Don't judge him that eats. The word judge means condemn. By the way, as a side note, that word isn't always used wrongly between Christian brethren. Read 1 Corinthians 5. Paul's actually correcting that church because they did not judge, and it's the same word used. But see, here was the difference. 1 Corinthians 5 was a clear-cut, rampant sin issue that he's saying you have got to address. This was dealing with areas where a brother wasn't necessarily wrong in his particular position. He was just wrong in how he was trying to enforce it. And he was saying don't look down your nose at him. Because he does, necessarily, things that you don't think you can. So basically, you see that both of them have the natural tendency to look down on their brother in Christ, and they're both wrong. Just because somebody doesn't fit a particular list of scruples. And again, I'm not talking about every area. I'm talking about legitimate differences. Things where the Bible does not clearly specify. Just because somebody doesn't fit our particular list of scruples, we can't have a haughty spirit about it. Even if I'm right or you're right, did truth originate with us. I mean, are we intrinsically better? Are we now more valuable to God because we have a right opinion on a particular area? And if we're wrong... Pride is going to keep us from the correction we so desperately need. Principle number three, we're almost done. All of us are servants that belong to a master in heaven, so don't forget your place. Can you imagine, let's say you've got one servant, and he's invited to a special dinner to dine with the master. And so he cleans himself up, he puts on his best garment, which still, by the way, has stains and holes. And with an air of satisfaction, he takes a seat next to the master to partake of the meal. Well, then just then walks in another servant who's going to be serving the meal. And you know, the servant sitting at the table, he notices this guy doesn't look as clean as he should. Matter of fact, that food's cold. And so he launches into a blistering monologue against that other servant and all the things that he's doing wrong right in front of the master. Can you say awkward? Crickets in the room? Even the kindest of masters would look at him and say, My servant, don't forget your place. I notice you've cleaned yourself up. But you know what? I still see some holes in that garment. Positionally. A fellow believer in Christ is positionally just as righteous as you. In practice, all of us have some holes in our garments. And so he's asking the question Who art thou that condemns, judges another man's servant? Saying, Listen, in that area. You're gonna to have to let God deal with it in large part, and God's able to make that other brother stand just as much as you. It's to His own mastery stands or falls. I mean, imagine just a—you've got a hypothetical. Say it's a breakfast meeting. And you've got these four Christian brothers on fire for God. Uh, if you've been in Bible college, you know the dorm discussions. Everybody thinks they're right, and all of you are a bunch of knuckleheads. But uh, let's say this is the type of breakfast like that. You've got these four brothers from different backgrounds, and they're going to go to breakfast together, and they're going to enjoy each other's fellowship. All of them want to walk with God. All of them want to grow. All of them want to be the real deal. And and so they meet at this restaurant. And they begin to talk. You know, the first guy, he realizes, he says, you know, I get up at 4.30 every day, eat my half cup of Wheaties usually, Run a couple miles. I'm my ideal weight. I'm listening to these guys talk, and that guy didn't get up till six. That guy gets up at seven. That guy's overweight by twenty pounds. It's pretty obvious all these guys lack self-discipline. Well, sadly, I think it's pretty apparent I'm the adult in the room here. We got the second guy. He's listening to the conversation. He says, "You know, I notice I'm, I'm the only one here not drinking coffee. I noticed Mister get up early over there. Boy, he's, he's on his third cup. had not even had his omelet yet. Maybe if he slept a little longer, he wouldn't need so much caffeine." I don't like these guys' addiction to this foreign substance. I uh, pretty obvious. I'm I'm the mature one here. He got the third guy. He says, "You know, I've." Uh, I preached the gospel to 13 people this week in various places. And listen to these guys talk. I don't know that any of them have done it once. In fact, just now I went to the bathroom and I started talking to the waiter about his soul. I mean, all these things were discussed, and everybody knows the souls of men are more important. Clearly, I'm the one that's eternity minded here. There's the fourth guy says, you know, I listen to these guys and pretty obvious they go to restaurants a few times a month. In fact, Mr. Evangelist over there, he's here every week. He calls it evangelism, but how does he justify wasting all that money at a restaurant? <laughs> I'd never do that. I, I save that money. I send it to missionaries. What a dreadful waste of money. It's obvious I'm a better steward than all these guys put together. Now, Which one of those four positions were wrong? None of them. Which one of those four people grieved God by what was going on in here because he was taking his individual stance and trying to hold everybody up to where God had led him in an area of doubtful disputation? Which one of those four is missing out on real Christian fellowship and a chance to grow and to be sharpened, but his pathetic, puffed-up pride is stopping him from learning from a brother who's probably more mature than him in 50 other areas. But because he disagrees on that, he's not going to listen to him anymore. And by the way, the concept of weak and strong brother, I don't think everybody fits crisply and cleanly into that category all the time. I mean, you look around this room. It's very likely... There's brethren in this room that are far more mature than you in a lot of areas. But there's probably areas where you are more mature than them. So we all take out our sword and our list. How are we going to honor God and please Him together? You think, what... Does the devil want for this church? His name's Apollyon. That's one of his names. That means destroyer. Which way does he want to destroy this church? The answer to that is any way he can. What does a lion do? A lion exploits weakness. I mean, it may be uh, the weakness in some would be uh, pragmatism dropping the guard, dropping the sword of defense, dropping the walls of separation that ought to be up, and accepting and receiving anything. That may be one path of destruction. But here's another way that I fear has destroyed many a fundamental church also. Is to begin to take pride in the fact that we think we're right and become a stench in the nostrils of God. And listen, yes, a pharisaical attitude can be alive and well among us if we are not very careful. Let me ask yourself this question. Do you have close friends that you can strongly disagree with in some areas yet still learn from and be sharpened by and spiritually respect in many areas? You should. Many of you have had the unpleasant experience of having to leave a church. Let me challenge you on something. If all you have to say about that former church was negative, you are wrong in your thinking. Hard to say you were part of a church for five, six, seven, eight years, and then all of a sudden things change and all you have is bad things to say. Are you able to see the good too? To my shame, I will admit, when I left the Bible school I was at because of differences, I think it took me 10 years plus to be able to see the good and thank God for it. I was the problem there. I was wrong. Very wrong. I'm ashamed of that, but I take the Lord's forgiveness. How do you evaluate people that you meet? Is it only a list? of things you think they shouldn't do? Or do you see the list of positive living out the fruit of the Spirit? Also. Are you able to differentiate between major concerns and minor concerns? Or does every disagreement have to be elevated to the level of catastrophic... And then you go into martyr complex mode. I'm so lonely. Everybody's confused but me. Look, I'm not mocking that. I know how it feels to be spiritually alone. Believe me, I've been there a lot. But some of that, if I'm honest, has been self-cost. Not all of it, but some of it. It's a good thing to evaluate. Uh, When you do have disagreements with a brother or sister, does that render you ice cold to others? Or can you still be charitable? Despite the difference. Are you able to have your own private convictions in some areas while understanding that it may be a mistake to try to force all of them on others? And listen, they're not always wrong if they don't agree with you. Not always. When I first went into business years ago, I. Respect George Mueller. My business was going to be built on prayer. So I didn't advertise. I started asking God for work. God gave work. After a while, I started priding myself on the fact that I didn't have a logo on my van. But I didn't advertise. And I didn't look for work except in my prayer closet. There was nothing wrong with that. Oh, I saw some great answers to prayer, but here's what was wrong with it. I began to develop a spiritual pride over it and think every business should be run that way. And people would ask me, how do you advertise? And I'd kind of put my nose in the air and say, well, I don't advertise, I just talk to God. Nothing wrong with handling it that way. Over time, you know, it changed that. There were several factors. One was driving an unmarked white van through neighborhoods and people staring at me wondering who this guy is. I wanted to be identified. But there was a Christian brother who did some work for me. Had a, had, a, had a testimony all over town, hardworking, reputable, godly, the real thing. And I remember sitting there at an intersection in our town and watching him drive through with this well-marked van, professional, clean, thinking of this guy's testimony in town. And I thought, that guy has some things to emulate. You see, I wasn't wrong to not advertise, but I was wrong to say nobody else should. You run into this and people raising money for missions. Someone says, well, I think it should be the Mueller model. I'm not going to go ask for money. Great. I'll be honest. If I was in deputation, that's probably what I would do. That's personally. But you've probably noticed I have missionaries through who are raising money. Do you know why? Because I'm not going to make that a law for everybody else to follow. I'm going to leave that one up to the individual conscience. That's okay. There's no one set way to do that. I mean, do you understand that having a higher standard does not always mean you're more mature? Not always. It can, but it doesn't always mean that. Sometimes that can be a sign of carnality. I look at times in my own life, I think I was proud of having the higher standard just to say I had the higher standard. Do you look at your fellow believers as projects for you to fix who fail to meet your standard? Or lowly fellow servants of a majestic and holy master in heaven? Look, there isn't a person in this room who does not need some fixing. There's not a person in this room who does not positionally have some holes in their garment. It's like you're walking around with a garment has a hole in the back, you don't know about it, and only others can see it. Apply that to your life. We are called to minister as broken people. The Lord's reclamation projects will walk through that door. And listen, on one hand, it's gonna be a grief to God if we capitulate and say, let's ape the world, let's throw out standards. Let's bring in Zeke and the Mohawks. Who cares? Let's just do whatever we want and call it evangelism. That would grieve God. But listen, on the other side, how many of you want to stand before God and have Him ask you why you turn people away? Because of a superior, haughty spirit. Because you thought you were right. I pray, honestly, as we go through this, I want us to stand for truth. I want us to have a militant stand for truth. I want us to expose error. I, God helping me, I'm going to still preach against sin here. I'm going to still address clear-cut sin issues where I have to. I don't like church discipline. But if I'm going to obey the Scriptures, there are times where we have to take care of things. But on the other side, I beg God, We can have a charitable spirit in all of this. And remember the dust heap we all are. Let's pray. Father, You know the difficulty it is dwelling in this body of flesh. On one hand, we're constantly badgered and tempted to lower the bar to fit in who takes steps towards living unholy. But further on the other side, we concede these fallen hearts of ours can hide behind a mask of knowledge which puffs up. Lord, help us as a people, as a church, to see the difference between doctrinal problem and things that are honestly preferential. Help us to see the difference between things that need to be handled right now and things that should be left. Father, I believe everyone in here that belongs to You wants to honor You. I really do. And oh, we battle to carry that out. Father, I pray You'd encourage us where it's needed. Help us to stand stronger where it's needed. Help us to be corrected where it's needed. Help us to be charitable through it all. In Jesus' name, Amen.